Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome into this week's edition of the show before the show, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. I am Sam Dykstra. Uh, if you listened to last week's episode, this is officially my rebuttal uh, to my colleagues Tyler Mon and Benjamin Hill after they uh, li- <laughs> said some libelous things about my uh, time in Florida. No, just kidding. Uh, it was a great episode. I definitely encourage everybody to go back and listen if you haven't already. It was about minor league ballpark renovations. It's starting our theme. Uh, we're going to be doing a themed episode the first week of every month moving forward. So for March, we did minor league ballpark renovations. Ben and Tyler put together a great series of interviews um, about some changes that are coming to stadiums for the 2023 season. There are a lot of them across the minor league landscape. Go back and listen to that. I was in spring training in Florida. I'll get to to that in a little bit here. Um, But you're hearing me right now instead of Tyler, who normally uh, introduces the show, because Tyler, as you may know, is in Taiwan right now, calling the World Baseball Classic uh, Pool A. So he's called games involving the Netherlands, uh, Cuba, Italy, all the teams in that pool. Benjamin Hill is off this week, though you will hear from him here shortly. Uh, but just want to introduce the show since we're all over the world right now. It's it's kind of crazy how things are working. We have a fun series of interviews for you this week. Hopefully we'll get back to a little bit closer to normal as the minor league season uh, gets closer and closer. We're looking at AAA opening day coming at the end of this month, which again is still so crazy to say. Uh, but before we get into everything else, the fact that we have one of the play-by-play voices of the World Baseball Classic. its I, I've said this on Twitter a bunch, and I've said this to Tyler himself, and I'm not saying it to him now because, again, we're all across the world, but uh, could not be more proud of that guy for what he's doing in the World Baseball Classic. If any of you know Tyler, and if you've been listening to the show for as many years as we've been putting out podcasts, you do know him by this point. Um, he's been w- working super hard to get this type of opportunity as somebody who loves the World Baseball Classic more than anybody I know personally. Uh, it's been really fun to see him work through the international circuit, work WC qualifiers, and then to get this opportunity in Taiwan and call a heck of a game. I mean, you listen to some of these broadcasts. They're exciting. They're fun to listen to. They're fun to watch. Um, that's all due credit to Tyler being the play-by-play voice the very first one we heard in the world baseball classic because he had the first game so could not be more proud of that guy super pumped he's still here with us uh on this show but obviously big big things ahead 
for Tyler. Uh, let's throw it to our first interview of the week. Ben talked to James Bailey, an author of the book Major League Debuts 2023, which incorporates some detailed bios and full career stats for all 303 players who debuted in the major leagues last season. You might think like, oh, we probably know a lot about those guys. They're they were minor leaguers first. They were prospects. Some of these guys aren't very big names. They may have come up for just a cup of coffee, and there's some fun stories behind them. So here's Ben talking to James Bailey. Here on the show before the show podcast, I am joined by James Bailey, author of Major League Debuts 2023 edition. James, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I said us, but it's really just me, Ben Hill co-hosts Tyler Mon and Sam Dykstra are elsewhere right now, but you'll be hearing from them, you know, elsewhere in the podcast, of course. Um, so a lot to get into here. Major League Debuts 2023 edition. The title is self-explanatory, but uh, we'll get into a lot of things here. But let's just start with, you know, what is this book and, you know, what what compelled you to put, put it together? Uh, this book is... Uh... It's 303 stories, basically. Uh, every player that came up last year, uh, from the Julio Rodriguez to the, um, you know, Fernando Cruz, some of the guys that didn't have, uh, you know, hot prospect background, or at least not recently. Some of them were hot prospects a long time ago. You got your Mark Appels in there. Um, but it's, uh, we've got a recap of what they did in their first game. Um, we've got their background, where they came from, uh, what happened to them last year, uh, you know, before they came up, when they were up, or in some cases after they went back down. Uh, and then a little bit of a, you know, what, what can we expect from them in the future? And how it came about was, I don't know, I kind of thought about the kind of book I might like to read. And just started playing around with some ideas and, and it kept on going. Yeah. And you're uh, you know, qualified to put together a book like this. If you could talk about your background a little bit, I know uh, quite a number of years ago, back in the day, you worked for the Durham bulls and then uh, a little more recently, but baseball America, obviously baseball has been a big part of your life. Um, yeah. Just fill us in on, on all that. Well, um, I started with the Bulls back when I was in college, and uh, that was uh, 1990. Uh, I worked there for three seasons, and there was some overlap there between working uh, at Baseball America because back at that time, they were both owned by Miles Wolf. So there was a lot of overlap between the two uh, entities. Um, on game day, you would see a lot of people working at the Bulls games who during the day we're, we're uh, working at Baseball America and make a few extra bucks. But um, so I, I had a bit of crossover there and I started at Baseball America as an intern when I was in school and I kept on when I finished. And uh, I left for a little bit and came back. And, and after I left there, I moved up to New York and I stayed in touch. I'd done some work for them over the years, uh, wrote a bunch of book reviews and I did some top uh, prospect list for them. Now it's been a few years, but I did the Marlins back when we had guys like Christian Yelich and JT Real Mudo coming through. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been uh, ever since I was a little kid growing up in Seattle and rooting for the very bad Mariners, I've been uh, hooked on baseball. So, um, and then as far as books go, uh, you were kind enough uh, it's over 10 years ago now to uh, review 
on uh, on the site there, the uh, greatest show on dirt, which was a book that was set in the old Durham athletic park. So I won't quiz you on it because, uh, you know, it's possible you've forgotten some of the details by now. I will admit I've forgotten some of the details, but I remember reading that, enjoying it, writing about that about, yeah, 10 or 11 years ago. And then since then you've um, detoured, you've written what, four other novels and, you know, gone in all sorts of different directions with your writing. Yeah, there was one other baseball novel, um, which I actually, I kind of like better than The Greatest Show on Dirt, but The Greatest Show on Dirt has definitely sold more copies. I think the Durham Bulls hook there. The other one was called Nine Bucks a Pound, and it was about a player who, uh, he got a little advantage by using some illegal um, uh, methods as far as uh, the uh, performance-enhancing drugs go. Uh, but um I thought that was a nice story. Um, the Then there was another, well, the other ones weren't, weren't about baseball. So, you know, people can look those up. We'll, we'll leave those ones out for now. Right. But for the record, we, we are not only limited to baseball on this podcast. Of course, it's baseball centric. But if you want to mention <laughs> anything non-baseball related, we will not censor or delete it later. Um, but the new book is, of course, all baseball, wall-to-wall baseball. As you mentioned, um, you know, 303 players made their major league debuts uh, last season. They're all in this book. Um, it's a, a lot of work to put together something like this. Um, you know, it's over 400 pages, it's 303 players. Um, I imagine you got the idea or knew you were doing this kind of early in the season so you could work on it incrementally when new guys debuted or uh, what was your process in putting this together? Um, I didn't really start on it till the end of the, you know, towards the end of the season. So it was, uh, it was kind of like, I didn't, I didn't sleep a lot. Uh, and I was kind of, I, I, I didn't know when I started exactly how many players there would be uh total. And I, I was kind of, you know, figuring it was going to get up around 300. And uh, I don't know if you remember or paid attention. Like I was probably the only person really paying attention to stuff this closely, but on the last day of the season, three players made their debut. And while I'm happy for them, I was just like, Oh man, there's three more guys I got to, you know? So, um, but it was, uh, it was interesting to see, you know, how, uh, some of the teams use their September call-ups. Um, you know, it's all different nowadays. They can only have two, but they're required to fill those spots. So even when somebody got hurt, you saw some guys come up for, you know, real uh, short opportunities, but they had to fill somebody. There were a couple of players who had been, you know, gone home after a minor league season and got the out of the blue call to join the team. And uh, I'm sure that kind of makes their... Uh, makes their off season a lot more exciting, but it's just more guys to write about. Yeah. Obviously you want as many guys as possible to get that uh, major league call up, but yeah, there's three at the end of the season. It ruined your round number as well. You would have <laughs> had 300, the, the 300 club, but uh, all 303. Um, so this book is, I mean, you could read it from page one all the way to the end and, you know, get to know all these players but, you know, also functions kind of as a, a reference book or a research book where maybe you're watching a game and you say, oh, who is this guy or, you know, something of that nature. Um, you know, a lot of information in these in these write ups for each player. What do you see or who do you see as the book's audience in terms of, you know, people that will, you know, uh, that it will appeal to most? And, and how do you see it being utilized? 
I think uh, reference books like this will obviously have a, a fantasy baseball edge. I mean, there's not, it's not hardcore fantasy and I didn't really go into a lot of sabermetric kind of stats. Uh, there are complete um, career stats for everybody. And one of the reasons I thought that was important is you can't really find those in books anymore. Like the Bill James handbook, as much as I love those and buy it every year and, um, you know, always dive in when that comes uh, for the guys that come up, they used to include their full uh, minor league stats. Uh, now, uh, except for a handful of top prospects, they they'll just usually include the current or you know the most recent seasons minor leagues. Um, so I thought the context of having all those stats there was uh, a good one. Um, I've had I, I play a Stratomatic Dynasty League baseball uh, and. I've had a lot of guys in my league say that they felt the book was helpful in preparing for their, their drafts this year and just giving them more background. I think there's a bit of um, just kind of a general audience in a sense of, you know, you get stuck watching a, a game um, trying to figure out who is this guy? Uh, the name sounds familiar or maybe it comes totally out of left field. Uh, and there are a lot of players who come up with, you know, maybe they are kind of coming out of the blue there they're a relief pitcher they need you know team needed somebody you know so if you can just kind of flip through open it up like you said it's all organized alphabetically so you can just kind of you know go right to the guy and read about his background where he came from but you know everybody's got a story and some of the guys that aren't the hot prospects have really more interesting stories you know they they didn't give up some of these guys were 30 or even older when they came up uh there's a couple guys in 32 years old um and when you've been playing that long you definitely have a lot of twists and turns and interesting things you know independent leagues guys have played overseas you know the number one thing for these guys is they love the game and wouldn't quit and they finally got their chance so right and you, you just hit on you know, a topic i wanted to get into but um, yeah, 303 major league debuts last season. Each one's a story. In putting this together, were there a couple guys who you know had things in their background that really surprised you? You found intriguing, or just the nature in which they you know received the call up? Um, you know, through the years, it seems, especially with social media, people are more and more into hearing about how guys got called up, or the circumstances, or or you know, where were you when you heard. And, uh, you know, I know the book doesn't necessarily go into all those little details, but there's a lot of, you know, personal history with these guys and certainly some outliers in terms of maybe not the typical uh, player to de debut. Um, if you want to talk about somebody who, you know, it's like didn't give up, this guy actually did give up. And I thought was an interesting story was uh, Ray Kerr. He's a left-handed pitcher. He came up with the Padres last year, but he was uh, played on a really we'll call it bad um high school team in yeah. reno <laughs> they were not a powerhouse and he was not heavily scouted he played one year at junior college and he just walked away from the game and he went back home and he was working in a movie theater um and when he got tired of cleaning up popcorn he got a new job working at 7-eleven and uh finally uh a coach talked him into giving a, a junior college ball another shot um and then he impressed enough that they found a spot for him up in the Alaska Baseball League, which is the collegiate summer league. And he's competing against, you know, players from 
big four-year schools. Uh, and one thing uh, he said when someone first suggested he go pitch in Alaska, he thought they were kidding because he didn't realize that he even played baseball up there. So he wasn't following it all that close, but he went up there and he did extremely well. Uh, he was going to transfer to a four-year school. Um, and then the Mariners uh, asked him to to throw a bullpen for him and they signed him for $5,000. So not a big bonus baby, but he did well enough. Uh, and then he interested the Padres in, uh, as a trade um, and he eventually made it. So, you know, there's stories like that that are just kind of interesting, totally off the beaten path. Um, you have guys, I, I mentioned Fernando Cruz earlier, who, you know, he was drafted in 2007 as a shortstop. And he finally made it last year as a relief pitcher. And his first um, position change was actually uh, the Royals tried to put him behind the plate. But that didn't really take, and he still couldn't really hit. And uh, they gave him a short trial as a pitcher and then let him go. And he just wandered and wandered and wouldn't quit. And the Reds scouted him in Mexico. They scouted him in Puerto Rico. And they signed him. And he's probably going to make the team out of spring training this year. He came up in uh, September and he pitched really well. So he was a, a nice heartwarming story, but he's also, uh, he could be a legitimate contributor for them. So. Yeah. And as you mentioned, these guys, you know, you just turn to the index and then find the write up immediately. And I was kind of following along with you as you talked about, <laughs> um, you know, right on the back copy too. you know, 303 fascinating tales of perseverance. And I think that, you know, what me and I'm sure a lot of listeners of this podcast like about the minor leagues, of course, there's a lot of attention on the prospects and rightfully so, but there's so many players who don't get much attention and at a book like this gives them, um, gives people an opportunity to learn about, you know, everybody, you know, year after year. And speaking after of year after year, I mean, this is a an evergreen concept and that as long as there's Major League Baseball, there's going to be Major League debuts. Have you thought about, uh, you know, continuing on with this project and doing it for next year as well? I've already started writing uh, some of the backgrounds for uh, some of the guys who seem like they're obvious candidates. Uh, you had three guys signed from Japan um, who I could feel pretty confident they're going to play this year. So I started working on those guys. And there's a few others I've already, you know, taken a taking a bit of time working on Anthony Volpe and Andrew Painter. And now I'm hoping Painter's elbow is going to hold out, you know? Uh, so, I mean, it, it'd be great to see him. I'm not sure he's going to make it before he turns 20 because that's going to come pretty early. And I imagine they're going to slow him down a little bit now after the tender elbow reports. But um, I, I wanted to get a, a head start and there's some things I, I think the book came out really nice, but there's certain things where I, I start getting ideas of, oh, maybe I could try this. Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely uh, gunning for a 2024 edition. All right. Yeah. An annual tradition with the uh, Major League debuts by James Bailey. Um, so, yeah, James, tell people where they can get this book, you know, how to get it, uh, how to check out your other work. You know, promote to your heart's content. Promote to my heart's content. All right. Uh, the, most of the sales right now are on Amazon. It's uh, in print and Kindle format. Um, and the print sells a lot better. Um, and I I kind of get that myself. Um, I, I think it's a great book to flip through. Um, it's nice to be able to, I guess, click through it on a Kindle, but not the same reading experience. But then again, I'm old. So, you know, younger people might 
might be more up for the EPUBs. Uh, we have ebook in pretty much anywhere you can buy an ebook, and there's also a print version available through BarnesandNoble.com. So, all your online booksellers. Nice. And uh, before I let you go, just a more left field question, but you you know live in Rochester now. Before we started recording this interview, you said you're not a big garbage plate guy, but as someone who lives in Rochester um, and a city I enjoy visiting. If you could plug just one thing in Rochester, what it would be, you know, if people are coming to Rochester, you know, where do you direct them for food, drink, fun, whatever? Uh, we usually wind up at Dinosaur Barbecue. And uh, <laughs> if we have uh, friends coming from out of town and go out for one place, uh, it'd be Dinosaur. I went there with uh, another John Manuel, uh, Baseball America uh for a uh, former co-worker there uh he's now a scout for the twins so uh he was in town last fall and i'm like john i know where we're going for lunch so yeah dinosaur barbecue that's usually where we head there you go one in rochester check out dinosaur barbecue which i believe started in syracuse and i think there's actually one in uh in brooklyn where i live so there's a, there's a couple dinosaurs around they've got them pretty much all over now there's uh i think there might even be one in buffalo so yeah, so instead of going extinct, the, the dinosaurs are expanding. <laughs> Up and down the throughway, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But anyhow, back to the topic at hand. Major League Debuts, the 2023 edition is out now. Author James Bailey, thanks so much for joining me on the show before the show podcast and talking about the book, and I hope this inspires other people to check it out. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been great. All right. Thank you to Ben and James for that discussion. Uh, really excited to to dive into that. And just again, like I work in prospects. I work in minor league baseball. I cover a lot of these guys coming up. But sometimes the guys who come into the major leagues are just there for a very short amount of time, but they still get their names put in <laughs> to the book as major leaguers. So it's fun to tell those stories. And I'm grateful James put together that book uh, for everybody to enjoy. So go seek it out if you have the opportunity. Uh, before we get into our second interview here, I just wanted to bring some things that I saw in spring training from my time in Florida. I hit up 10 camps in 10 days, all on the Gulf Coast side, going from Lakeland uh, in the north all the way down to Fort Myers. So that's Tigers camp down to Twins and Red Sox territory, hitting up places like Tampa, Dunedin, Bradenton, a lot of these places that we know from the Florida State League. Uh, some things that stood out to me real quick. Uh, from Blue Jays camp, I talked to Addison Barger, uh, one of their top prospects coming off a breakout year last year that saw him climb multiple levels, play some time in the Arizona Fall League, get added to the 40-man. You might have read my story, and if you haven't, I, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, he grew up deciding he wanted to hit left-handed because of Ichiro. He's somebody who was born in Washington State, went to high school in, the Flor in Florida in the Tampa area, but... Uh, he's a natural right-handed thrower and, and watched Ichiro and saw his big leg kick and was like, I kind of want to do that. I, I want to be that type of hitter. So he taught himself how to switch hit, eventually decided he was going to be lefty only. And now he shows really good power. Um, watching his leg kick in slow motion, it's almost like a karate chop. He really gets it up there. I asked him about it. Why do you do it that violent? And he said, it keeps me in time. It hasn't been an issue so far. We'll see how it works out. But uh, the Blue Jays have certainly been encouraged by his spring training, the way he's hit the ground running there in major league camp. Uh, 
He might move from the infield to the outfield just to get a look out there. The Blue Jays have a much bigger need on the grass than they do on the dirt, considering he plays shortstop, third base, maybe even a little second base. He has the arm for the outfield. Really interested to see who he can be uh, going into the year. I got a question about him the other day. Could he be a top 100 prospect? And honestly, by the time he proves to us that the leg kick won't hurt his leg tool or his hit tool, rather, uh, he might already be in the majors and on the cusp of graduation. So he could be kind of one of those late breakers. I know he had a breakout season last year, but one of those late break types who proves like he's one of the best prospects in the game by the time he's coming off lists. And that's just the way that goes. Uh, another one that stood out to me, no huge surprise here, but Jackson Holiday uh, of the Baltimore Orioles, the number one overall pick last year, was a little bit of a surprise to see him in Major League Camp this year, but the O's decide to get aggressive with him. I mean, listen, he's Matt Holiday's son. He's been around Major League clubhouses before. This is not going to be some huge eye-opening experience for him. He knows what they look like. He knows what happens in there. Uh, so they threw him into the the deep end of the pool, and they've given him some decent chances. It's It's all been in late game opportunities coming in as a late game replacement uh, as a you know defensive replacement at shortstop, getting some at bats here and there, but watching him at short, I mean, it's been really good. It, every time I look up, I'm like, Oh, that was a nice play by the guy at short. Oh, that's Jackson holiday. Again, the guy who was playing high school ball this time last year. Uh, it's been really encouraging. I know my colleagues, Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, we all love Jackson holiday going into the year. He's a top 15 prospect in the game. We have him circled as somebody who, if he hit like he did last year in his brief look at, at in the minor leagues, could be the number one overall prospect by the end of the year. His plate discipline has been elite early on. Uh, if he can play a mean shortstop, that's going to be a big thing for the Orioles because they're about to graduate Gunnar Henderson. They have Joey Ortiz, Jordan Westberg, Corner, Connor Norby, Kobe Mayo, all these guys in the upper minors. What is the next wave? Well, it's going to be highlighted by Jackson Holiday. Uh, so it was really encouraging to see him do so well on the major league side down there. Anthony Volpe sticking in the AL East. Uh, I'm actually going to stick to the AL East this whole time, but that's just because those were the teams I got to see uh, during my trip, a lot of them anyway. Uh, but Anthony Volpe of the New York Yankees system, uh, some some creeping suggestions that maybe he's the one to win this shortstop job in the Bronx. We'll see. I mean, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa is the veteran option right there, I don't think. Anybody was really encouraged by what he did in 2022. Oswald Peraza is probably the better defender than Volpe at short, and he got a little bit of major league time at the end of last season. So he's certainly looking major league ready. Uh, would be the more experienced option on opening day. But given what Volpe's done, I mean, he's hit the ball. He's shown power. He's been good defensively, too. I mean, Aaron Judge himself talked about this the other day. He's making heads-up plays at shortstop. It's not just, hey, can you get – to the ball and cover ground. It's what happens when you get to it. And there's the lead runner going from second to third right in front of you. You're tempted to just throw it across the dime and get the out. He's throwing it to third, getting the guy caught up in a rundown. Uh, it's been really interesting to see Volpe take to that. I talked to him a little bit in Yankees camp, not to write anything, but just speaking to him, seeing how he's doing. He's a friend of the show. He's been on this podcast before. Uh, and we talked about his throwing. I mean, that was a big point of emphasis for him going into last season. I was wondering what he was doing to work on that this year. He said he actually spent some time at Yankees camp throughout the offseason and went to the gas station, which is on the minor league side. It's over at their developmental complex up the road in Tampa from George Steinbrenner field. Um, but the, 
but the gas station is for pitchers. It is an area where they can see all sorts of metrics on their pitches. They can see their mechanics. Well, Anthony Volpe wants to know what his mechanics are like too. Uh, and he talked about getting into kind of a rubber band esque uh, throwing motion, just so the do everything else. So the ball just comes out of your hand more naturally. Uh, so that could be a big part of his game. If he can just become a shortstop and add on the hit tool, add on the power tool, it's going to be really, really special. I would still bet against him being the opening day starter uh, for New York, but maybe he's even more ahead of the curve. Maybe he's an option by the end of April or early May uh, if Peraza and Kiner Falefa still are not getting it done a month or two into the season. And then finally, uh, one of my favorite stories that I did from Florida was with Sedan or Sedan, excuse me, Sedan Rafaela, uh, Red Sox prospect, top 100 prospect, one of my favorite defenders in all the minor leagues. Uh, he was really good at shortstop, but the Red Sox decided to move him to center field just to see how much ground he could cover out there coming out of the lost pandemic year. And he's been elite there. I mean, he was making highlight after highlight after highlight for AA Portland at the tail end of last season. It, you know, you go back to the MILB or MLB pipeline accounts. We have a lot of Rafaela defensive highlights and it's sliding catches into the gaps. It's robbing home runs over the wall in center field. Um, it's plays at shortstop. I mean, hard charging moves coming in, showing the, the speed the same way, going back onto the grass, making Willie Mays style catches. Uh, it's been really fun to see Rafaela push the envelope with his glove. So, I had some of those highlights handy and I showed them to him and he walked me through what he was thinking. So that story is on MLB.com right now or RedSox.com, wherever you may find it. Um, Sedan Rafaela breaking down his own uh, highlights, what he was thinking, what he was trying to do, um, what his favorite types of plays are. I won't spoil anything, but go check out that story. And we laid over the audio with the visual. So there, you can see him making the play and hear him describing it at the same time. That was really, really fun. I encourage you to go check that out. I've talked enough about spring training. Let's bring in our next guest here. Um, one to bring her on to the show, uh, somebody who's been in minor league baseball for a little bit, Emily Messina, who had been working for the Reading Fighting Phils as their broadcaster uh, the last three years. She actually got hired in April 2020, didn't get that season in, but then was behind the mic in 2021 and 2022. She's joining the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders this upcoming season alongside Adam Marco. Uh, they will be working as a pair in the booth. So we wanted to bring on Emily, chat about this new role, what she's most excited about in joining the Rail Riders. And also considering that this, you know, uh, we're talking to you a few days after International Women's Day. Um, just what her experience has been like and the community of women broadcasters in this game and how that's grown over the last few years. So here's me talking to Emily Messina. Well, we're very happy this week on the Show Before the Show podcast to be joined by the newest Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders broadcaster, Emily Messina. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to reach out because this week it was announced that you will be joining Adam Marco over there with the Rail Riders. Um, you come from Reading. You've been with Reading for three seasons before this. But, you know, as we get going here, as we get closer to the season, I mean, we're already in March. AAA baseball is being played this year. What are your expectations for this new role and, and how psyched are you to, to join Scranton? I'm really excited to join a team as incredible as Scranton and a broadcaster as great as Adam. Um, my biggest goal for this year is to learn. 
I really just want to grow as a broadcaster. I want to stay focused. And I think under Adam, um, who was broadcaster of the year, the minor league broadcaster of the year last season, will be a great opportunity for me. And I'll still get to travel to a good number of the away series. So I'll get the innings that I'm looking for to practice. Um, and I'm really excited to be part of the Yankees uh, minor league organization. Yeah. And take us through how this kind of came about. I mean, like we said, you were with Reading for a while. This is a jump from double A to triple A. Um, but, you know, going into this season, were you looking for a new challenge? What What was it about Scranton that drew you there? Yeah, I was definitely looking um, to move up. I mean, I think everyone is in the end. Um, and so coming from an organization as well known as Reading, I, I kind of wanted to stay on that level. Um, and Scranton is right up there. They have fantastic attendance. They have fantastic promotions. And as always, the Yankees have a good minor league system. So I think, you know, it's the perfect all encompassing job for me. And I really just like I said, wanted the opportunity to learn under somebody. So I really wanted to kind of transition into maybe a number two role where I could really focus on my craft and get some um, feedback throughout the course of the season and get some constructive criticism. Um, so I think this is a really good opportunity for me to take my broadcasting to the next level. Yeah. And, and speaking of how far your broadcasting has come, how do you feel like you have grown in the last you know two years that we've actually had minor league baseball? You were originally hired to be the broadcaster for Reading in April, 2020, which is unfortunate timing on that, but you got two full seasons under your belt there in the Eastern league. How have you grown since you started with the fight and fills? Oh my gosh, incredibly much. If I listen back to the beginning of my broadcast um, and then to where I am now, it, I'm so pleased with how it's been coming, but it's a long road to get there. I'll be the first to say, you know, um, started out a little raw and I really have felt comfortable by the end of last season. I started to feel really comfortable with my craft and not only just being on the air, but all the other stuff that come with being a broadcaster off the air, your relationships with the players and with the coaching staff. And I was really blessed to have Sean Williams as my manager and a fantastic coaching staff that included me. So I feel like I was able to get a lot of knowledge out of them about the way that the system works and about the um, organization. So I think um, it was a real good experience for me there and a huge opportunity to uh, just really learn about the game from the inside. Yeah. And how do you feel like broadcasting has changed in the minor leagues just the last few years with the pitch clock? I mean, I think that's a huge thing. A lot of major league broadcasters are now getting used to, you have to get your stories out quick, right? Like you can't just be there spinning yarns for 20 minutes because that might be the length of a half inning. How do you feel like that's affected the way you call games? Well, it's nice that I've had some experience with the pitch clock, so I know kind of how to adjust my style. Um, it's really just a lot about word choice and shortening down, um, you know, the stories we're telling, which I actually think on the broadcasting end is a really good good tool to have. I think, you know, being able to turn kind of a soliloquy into a little short bit um, is kind of what people are looking for anyways, right? People are looking for those little viral hits, those little short, um, you know, pops of information, um, and I think that the pitch clock has helped us kind of take down these ginormous stories and turn them into fun little tidbits of information. So I've gotten some good practice and you know what time and again, there's a longer inning that comes with a lot of offense or a couple of pitching changes where you're still able to tell those, um, more epic sagas about a player's history. So I think, um, it's a good mix now and it keeps the flow up really well. Yeah, I think some of my editors wish I could have a pitch timer on some of my stories to get them out quicker. <laughs> I like what you're saying about that. And talking about storytelling, I mean, jumping from double A AA to triple A, just the players are different. You're going to get some 27, 28 year olds who 
believe they should be major leaguers compared to double A guys who are trying to reach that level. How do you anticipate that change and just the stories you are able to tell at the minors highest level? Yeah, I definitely think that it'll be more encompassing of their whole life as opposed to just, you know, focusing on their baseball career, because by the time that you get to older age, and even we saw it in double A a lot, a lot of these players are married with children. They have, you know, lives going on outside of the game at this point. And so I think that always makes an interesting um, transition for them. And an interesting story about their journey is that they're more than just, you know, these numbers on the field. And for me, you know, anybody can Google, you know, what somebody's ERA or how many home runs they have, but uh, my job and what I love about my job is that I'm able to share, you know, the backstory of somebody, what they've got going on in their life. And I think that makes um, the non-baseball uh, person more interested in the game. Yeah. And, and just doing a little bit of research, when you st started at Reading, I came across a story in a Reading newspaper saying how your parents are Yankees fans. Mm -hmm. What was their reaction when they found out you were getting this job and kind of expanding that out? I mean, what comes with the expectations of the Yankee system? Phillies are are great, obviously, but the Yankees are the golden standard across baseball. I mean, what do you anticipate about making that jump? Yeah, my family was really excited. They're excited for any team that I work for. Yes, I mean, right. I've been blessed to somehow work for like my hometown team and my parents' hometown team, which is crazy to me. Like of all the places that you could end up, I ended up with both of them. Um, but I think for me, you know, the Phillies, I had an awesome time being there because it's right in the middle of a huge growth period and transition period for them. So they really had the come up of the year last year with making the world series. And so that was awesome to witness some of the guys that I had seen play, make it all the way to the big leagues and make an impact in the big leagues. And so that's what I'm looking forward to here with the Yankees is that they're always going to be contenders in the pile. And so seeing some guys, especially ones that I saw in Somerset last year up here in um, Scranton, and then seeing them go and make an impact in the majors is always a really cool part of the gig. And I think that you're right. The Yankees have a standard and I'm excited to be a part of that professional standard. Yeah. I was going to say like how much Anthony Volpe research have you had to already do, or how much are you going to just be pulling from all those at bats you saw last year with the Patriots? Yeah. I was so lucky to have him, uh, to see him and witness him in Somerset last year. And obviously he had a great time and they ended up winning the championship there uh, with all the work that he had put in earlier in the season. So he's, if he's with Scranton, I'm sure he'll make a big impact. And if he starts in the big leagues, I'll be happy to watch him there. Yeah, I think we're we're in that kind of mid-period now, right? Where it seems like either road is plausible, given that what he showed out spring training. Excited to see what he can do the rest of the way down there in Tampa. Um, you mentioned some of the exciting guys you got to see in Philly last year, or in Reading, making their way toward Philly. They had a three-headed monster in terms of pitching prospects. Between Andrew Painter, who came up late in the year, Griff McGarry was there for a little bit while longer. Mick Abel was there for a little bit while longer. What stood out from seeing those guys reach that level? Because... A lot of times when guys get to double A, they say they can feel the majors being close. All three of those guys have massive ceilings. What did you see out of them? I think it was uh, an important jump for all three of them. Griff came earlier in July and then Mick and Andrew were later in August. And I think by the time they got there, everybody was ready to rock. Um, they weren't nervous coming up. You know, they knew that they fit in with this crew and they had what it took. And you could really see that confidence translate onto the mound. But I think what's great about the three of those guys is that they're very confident in their stuff. They know that they've got it, but they're not pompous. They're not overtly um aggressive about any of that. And I think that's the skills that you need to make it as a big leaguer is to believe in yourself. And those three of them do, and they have, 
you know, such aggression on the mound, attack, 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 I think is like really the big things with them that they're going to go after you. They're going to throw that heater and they're going to see what you can do with it. And if you need, if they need to make adjustments off speed the second or third times around that they will. And so they've got, you know, for being young guys, they've got a lot of really good experience. A lot of them have played in, you know, those big team USA games and Griff's got a little bit more of that, um, you know, pressure experience under his belt, but they can all handle themselves really well and really professionally for younger guys. If you um, have had the opportunity to talk to them in interviews, they are fantastic to talk about. I mean, especially for some of these guys that are 19 and 20, they handle themselves really well. And so I think that that mental side of handling the game is something that they have down. And that I think is a big factor in being successful. Yeah. And what do you remember most about Painter, especially because, you know, at MLB Pipeline, we just made him the number one pitching prospect for him to reach double A. You talked about all those guys didn't look as young as they really were, as it says on their player page. But him for especially being 19 years old, getting up there when he did. um, What do you remember from that first start of seeing him? Well, I remember that he went six shutout innings, <laughs> like 80, 80 something pitches, which is pretty impressive. But then I remember that after the game, I had the opportunity to talk to him and I said, you know, do you feel 19 out there? Meanwhile, he's like six, seven, like towering over me. And he said, like, no, I played with these guys all the time. I know, you know, what they're about. I know what the standard is here. And so I feel like I can fit right in, even though I'm younger, you know, I have the stuff that's going to play here and I I'm ready to uh, showcase what I've got. So he has the right mentality there and I, you know, he'll come up and he'll just attack the strike zone and he's not afraid. And that uh, really shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going through your Twitter account, you know, just scrolling back through a little bit, there's a lot of support for people who are friends of this show, you know, Emma Tiedemann in, in, in Portland and Jill Gearn, who I knew called AFL games, just as you did uh, in the past. And you mentioned UMass women's basketball. You called some games this year for them. There was a time where there was an all women crew on that. We're talking here a day after, uh, you know, international women's day, like just speak to your role now as being a woman broadcaster at the AAA level, one stop away. Again, that Reading story, I saw you mentioned Susan Waldman as well, you know, being an inspiration at, at the in the Yankee system as well. But just as you were growing up thinking like this could come someday, do you, how far do you feel like broadcasting has come in terms of giving women these roles and women earning these roles behind the mic? Well, I'm so blessed to be able to have a couple of women in minor league baseball and, and then sports outside of that. Um, Emma, Jill, and our friend Maura Sheridan, um, all of them have been such a great support system for me um, and being able to just talk to them about shared experiences and look at them as role models for me has been an important part of me getting there, as well as my support system from home, my family and my friends. Um, you know, this is sort of a outlandish career choice maybe to pick as a woman in broadcasting, but they've always been nothing but supportive of me. And um, I'm so thankful for that. And uh, yeah, I, even I've seen it outside of the sport in UMass with basketball. Um, I've called a bunch of um, high profile swim meets this year, which has been fun. So the support that the men have given me from outside as well has been really influential in me getting to this point. And then, yeah, Susan Waldman, she's been the role model since I started. She's the reason that I got into this career. And I'm really lucky to have some contact with her, especially coming into the Yankee system. Yeah. I mean, when you talk to her, I mean, what questions are you asking somebody who's been in this business as long as she had broken barriers, broken her way into clubhouses like she has? I mean, what kind of questions do you ask somebody like that? 
Yeah, I mean, we've talked about all the great parts of being able to, you know, how do you handle interviews and how do you, um, you know, work on your craft as a broadcaster and what does this player showcasing? And last year, I know we had a really nice time when I saw a major league rehabber from Somerset. And so I texted her about, you know, what's, what's going on with this guy. And she was great with information. And then we also talk about, you know, how to handle some of the more difficult stuff, how to handle some of the hate and the feedback that you get as being a woman. And she is such a true professional at handling everything that's come her way. And so I just really look up to, um, the way that she handles herself. And that's something that I'm working on. Yeah. And if there are any, you know, women broadcasters listening to this right now, I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, it's a really unfortunate part of this right now. And you guys all have the toughest skin in the business from where I sit, but like, how do you go through that and still come through the other side as, as well as you guys always have? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple that I've worked with Alexis Yoder and Kara Guno, um, back in, they're trying to get into minor league baseball. And for me, I just try the best to stay in my own lane and really just focus on my craft and what I'm doing. Um, and you know, if anyone has, uh, any serious criticism, I will definitely listen to that because, you know, I want the fans to enjoy me. And so I, I want some feedback from them, but if they have anything ridiculous to say, I always just remember that I have the job and they don't, so, uh, <laughs> you know, that's enough. That, that is, that is a good one. I really, I really like that one. Um, and for people who are in Scranton, who are getting to know you, you know, coming up in, in a few weeks here as games get going, how would you describe your style? I mean, everybody's got a different way of, of calling a baseball game. There's no one true way to do it. That's the beauty of this sport and the beauty of that job. How would you describe what you do behind the mic? I would say my style is really casual. Um, I try to be really relaxed on the broadcast. I try to make it, you know, show that I'm having a lot of fun when I'm doing it because I really am. And so I'll really try to get to know the players and the fan base and see what everyone is kind of looking for information wise. That was a big thing for me in Reading was just kind of being um, in tune with what the fans were looking for and what kind of information they enjoyed hearing. So I'll try my best to uh, do the same in Scranton and I'm excited to meet a new fan base and a new team. And, um, you know, I've had some really good experience working with players and staff. So I, um, you know, hope to continue that here. And I'm really excited to work with Adam too, because I think, you know, his style is, is so professional and so fun to listen to. And I'll work on incorporating some of that. Yeah. Very cool. And, and I can hear Tyler Mon, who is calling WBC games right now and, and can't join us for this interview, but uh, I can hear him yelling across from Taiwan that I have to ask this question. You have experience in the Australian baseball league. We're coming off a night where Australia just upset Korea in the world baseball classic. A lot of people probably looking up right now of like, what is Australian baseball? So based off your time with the Melbourne aces, what did you learn about Australian baseball and what the sport is down there? Australian baseball is so much fun. I mean, Robin Gladdening's homer last night, that was really elite to watch. And I think, um, you know, that's their, the Australian baseball league is their highest that you can get to. So that's like playing professional for them. And so they've got serious talent. And a lot of those people have made it over into high minor leagues, Glenn Denning, Curtis Mead, and then some of them, um, you know, have just made it a high profile in Australia. And so I think they view themselves as the underdog. They're out there just to have a good time, but also to play some really good baseball. And that's showing right now. They're, you know, they're succeeding. My favorite thing about Australian baseball is um, – so in America, there's, you know, there's seeds in the dugout, there's gum in the dugout, 
maybe, you know, cliff bars in Australia, there's sour gummy worms and um, candy to get your energy up. And I don't know if that was just in Melbourne where I was, or if that's making it all the way to the world baseball classic. So that's something I'll have to find out. Yeah. Can we can incorporate that in press boxes too? Just like we yeah. could use our energy up too, you know, as writers and broadcasters. I'm just, there should be a bowl of candy at your disposal. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying we could also incorporate that from Australia. Well, Emily Messina, uh, one of the newest voices to the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders for the 2023 season. Thanks so much for joining us. Congrats again on the new role. And we're really looking forward to what you and Adam can do together over there in Scranton. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was once second rate for three straight seasons. The others never even managed that, nor anything else. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Meridian Peps. B. The Pittsburgh Pips. C. The Palmdale Paps. You've got some real get-up-and-go if you picked A, the Meridian Peps, who fizzled up in the Southeastern League of 1946, 1947, and 1948. Based in the seat of Mississippi's Lauderdale County, Meridian having been the state's biggest city for much of the previous 50 years, the Peps picked up where the Southeastern League's Meridian Eagles left off when the circuit shut down for the war following the summer of 42. Unfortunately, where the Eagles left off was last place. According to some sources, the Peps got their name in part because of the name of their manager, Fred Papa Williams, which would allow the team to be referred to as Papa's Peps. But the Peps moniker appeared in local papers as early as February of 47, including in stories introducing Walt Tosher, who was the Peps manager before Williams, for nearly their first 100 games of existence. Other explanations, such as that the Peps got their name from Meridian status as a caffeinated soft drink industry hotspot, pop closer to the truth. A Pepsi bottling plant did enter boom times there in the mid-40s, and the Meridian Coca-Cola bottling company was founded way back in 1902. However the name bubbled up, the Peps' performance was flat. In that wonderful new piece of the summer of 1946, the Meridian Club insisted upon waging war on the concept of good baseball. With a working agreement with the Brooklyn Dodgers, they dodged victory at every opportunity. Papers from other cities in the league described the team as the hapless peps, pepless, and the seventh place peps. Well, by year's end, they were the eighth place peps. The offense was so feckless that a rookie named Ray Dunn got 200 plate appearances for Meridian despite batting 198, and the pitching was no Sunday picnic either. Three different hurlers appeared in more than 30 games and posted ERAs north of 440. Not a single pep made the all-star team. 
Meridian drew a line to a new working agreement with the Cleveland organization for 1947 and 48, but everywhere the Peps went, there they were. In 47, despite solid pitching from one Wendell Davis, they wound up ten and a half games out of first place, and in 48 they were even more impressive in a way, twenty-three and a half games out. The very next year, they were rechristened the Meridian Millers and started producing. Led by Jack Moffin and Harold Summers, they won 80 games to finish second. And that's how the Peps plopped out. Now, I want to have a question for next time. Which of these teams was tough to tackle in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Marfa Cowboys. B. The Lexington Patriots. C. The Salinas Packers. Want to know the answer? Go along! Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is watching the grapefruit action, and I've got to peel him away. Our thanks again to Josh Jackson uh, for an, another Ghosts of the Miners. If you haven't done this yet, Ghost of the Miners is now also in written form on MILB.com. Um, go check that out. Some of those are ones that we've had on the podcast before, but Josh d- dives a little bit deeper into it. It's also there for your reading leisure, if that's how you uh, prefer to see it. You know, Normally, we don't put out these scripts, but this is a great way of diving into some of, the, uh, some of our favorite Ghost of the Miners of the past. And Josh does a great job of this week in and week out, of course, but now we're expanding the Ghost Empire a little bit. So go check out those stories on MILB.com as well. Again, our thanks to our guests this week, James Bailey and Emily Messina. Really glad we could get both of them on the show for a two-interview week this week. It's been a really Sam-centric show this week, and I apologize for that. Again, Tyler is out in Taiwan calling uh, the World Baseball Classic making all of us proud. Ben is taking some uh, much-deserved time off at the tail end of this week, gearing up for the 2023 season that is just around the corner, three weeks away from when you guys are hearing this. Opening day in AAA is on March 31st. Still taking me some getting used to thinking about AAA baseball in March, but that just means we get it even sooner. We'll be back next week uh, with more interviews, more discussions. Hopefully all of us can get together uh, next week to Start to preview the season to come. I mean, it really is right around the corner. We'll talk a little bit more about who's standing out in spring training and who could win some jobs and who is looking like they're going to the minors and where they're going. We, we have lots to discuss before that opening day arrives. I've been Sam Dykstra. On behalf of Tyler Mon, Benjamin Hill, and Josh Jackson, thanks so much for joining us this week on the show before the show, and we will catch you next week. Next week.